0: Well, I want to welcome all of you, those of you that are watching online, and those of you that are here, we have all sorts of people. Most churches around the country estimate that only about, on average, 50% of their people have come back during COVID, and now with this uptick in the Delta variant, that continues to be the case. And I want to, first of all, update you on where we are relative to wearing, to wear, or not to wear masks here at Wheaton Bible Church There's a lot of people on our staff that look at this closely, talk about it daily. We're continuing to monitor uh, what's going on uh, relative to COVID. And among the many variables in that equation, there are two primary ones. And the first is because we live in Illinois, uh, the state of Illinois. And as you know, our governor a couple weeks ago mandated masks to be worn um, while people are inside. However, um, going back, and this is going back a, a little bit, within the executive orders of the governor, there is an exemption for houses or places of worship. So we're aware of what the governor said. We're also aware that relative to some of this, uh, we are exempt. That's the first thing we look at. The second thing we look at is what's happening with COVID in our area right now. And while the incidences of COVID... Uh, i.e. the Delta variant are up, uh, critical care uh, units are still flat. We're really where we were in May earlier this year. So because of those two things, we're going to continue as we have been, watching this, monitoring this, as I said, regularly, and that is um, we are a mask-optional church. If you want to wear your mask, we have an area... Um, Here in the auditorium where people that have masks are welcome to sit. And then uh, the the balance of you, uh, it sure looks like uh, this morning, are not wearing masks. And that's just great. And uh, um, you are free to sit in those appropriate areas. So this is what we're going to do uh, going forward. It's kind of a funny thing for me to talk about. The last Sunday I'm preaching here at Wheaton Bible Church because I will be so glad to be done with COVID. And, um, well, I, I could preach on that, but I won't. <laughs> the other thing I, I want to say is, so here's my last uh, Sunday as I wrap up my ministry of Wheaton Bible Church and prepare to move into my role as a consultant with Greater Europe Mission. Um, when I first began I, my ministry, I was a youth pastor in, um, in Nina, Wisconsin, at Calvary Bible Church. And there's a bunch of people... Uh, today that are watching online and a bunch of you that are here why don't you guys that are here stand up would you where are you guys right here welcome them love you guys that I um, got all choked up when we just talked for a few minutes uh, before the service so having said those things let's pray Father, we are amazed that as we've been singing your mercy that has come to us in the form of a person, uh, God the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who willingly, voluntarily gave up his life that we might uh, find not just merely forgiveness, but wholeness, shalom and peace and eternal life. And we marvel at your love. We marvel at all that you have done for us in Christ. You are doing for us and will do us, do for us in the days, months, years, and eternity to come. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, and we want to love you more. To that end, th- this morning we want to pray for members of our family that are struggling, whether it's physically or emotionally or financially, and we want to pray that you would give grace, that you would prove yourself to be real and good uh, to our brothers and sisters that are hurting. We think of believers in Afghanistan, the church in Afghanistan, and pray. we pray that you would continue to To bless and protect and and, and to save lives. We marvel at the courage of believers in these difficult places around the world, and we ask that you would forgive us for taking our freedom and our liberty so lightly. We pray, God, that you would be glorified through us, uh, your people in all that we do, and we thank you now for the privilege of looking into your word. Speak to us from your word. Amen. So here it is. I'm winding things up. Uh, We we have this celebration Uh, next Sunday. This is uh, my last message, and there's so much to say, right? There are so many things I would like to say about Uh, memories, about sacred moments, about incredible people that would be you, Uh, incredible answers to prayer, incredible experiences, all the overflow of 27 years of me experiencing God's grace here through the ministries of Wheaton Bible Church and through you in my life. But today is not the day to do that. I will do that a little next Sunday, and Hannibal, in his grace, has given me four minutes. <laughs> Which, by the way, it tells me he's going to be a really good senior pastor. You know, this is the way it is, Rob. Sorry now. I actually, he said, we've got some other things that I, I, I can't tell you about. And really, that's not completely fair, right? Because uh, this is the fourth of my four concluding messages uh, my, my uh, final lapse here at Wheaton Bible Church on what my deepest wishes for you are, the people of Wheaton Bible Church. And so I began by saying, I wish for you confidence in the character of God. And then joy in the mercy of God. Last Sunday, I wish for you a love for the word of God. And today, and in, in some ways, I think this is the most important if I can say that. I wish for you warm-hearted, a warm-hearted gospel centrality rooted in the Son of God. Now, I I say warm-hearted because I want your Christian experience to be not merely something you believe. Oh yeah, I know that fact about Jesus. Uh, but something you know in the sense that you experience, something you taste and feel. I want your Christian experience not to be a matter of duty, but a matter uh, of delight. I long for you each and every day of your life to fall into the arms of your Savior, to jump into his arms in utter dependence upon him. Just as a child does With a parent he or she adores. And so today what I want to do is I want to explain what I mean about gospel centrality because it is not obvious. I want to then prove it biblically. So I'm going to start with an explanation, which is often the episode I do. I usually start with a text and then I'm going to prove it biblically and then we're going to apply it uh, together. So today, instead of looking at just one passage or maybe two like we normally do, I'm going to look at at several to weave kind of this theme throughout uh, the Scriptures. But we're going to start with the one passage in the New Testament that articulates the most clearly and simply the Gospel. So out of respect for God's Word, would you stand with me? And we are going to read beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in just a couple of verses, but we're going to start with verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Now, notice the implications of the gospel here for the non-Christian, which you received, and then for the Christian on which you have taken your stand. Verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It's what the Old Testament talked about. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then Paul goes on to give evidence of the resurrection. You may be seated. So Paul, help us out here. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the summary statement of the main message, the basic message of the Bible, right? And what is that message? That Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was raised from the dead. And by faith in him, we find forgiveness and eternal life. The word gospel literally means good news. So the gospel is the joyful historical report, it's rooted in history, that's the context here in chapter 15, the joyful historical report that Christ died for sins, Jesus became a man, God the Son became the Son of God. But today, my focus isn't on the role of the gospel in salvation, Or how a non-Christian comes to Christ. And I, I want you to hear me in this. Today my focus is on the role of the gospel in spiritual development or how we as believers grow in Christ. Why? Because over the years I have become increasingly convinced along with a whole slew of other people that for many of us as believers there's a hole right in the middle of our gospel and we don't even know it. So for example we understand uh, the forgiveness we have received in the past. We understand our eternal future uh, that is awaiting us in the presence of God forever in heaven. But we don't really understand the transforming radical power of the resurrected Jesus Christ to change our lives, to change situations in the present. So, for example, we fail to to think about this wonderful reality uh, that Jesus Died and was raised from the dead to help you overcome your struggle with your anger toward your spouse. Toward your kid. Uh, uh, To give you uh, the capacity to persevere in the context of the brokenness of your extended family. Uh, To overcome uh, the sexual temptation that often gets the better of you. Uh, to break uh, the the chains of materialism that bind us in our culture. Uh, The anxiety that kidnaps our joy. And we miss that, so what do we do? We go to Amazon and buy books on self-help. 250 ways to a better life. Uh, 17 steps to the marriage you've always dreamed of. Instead of looking to Christ. Because we think, and here I'm starting to uh, tease this out, we think that the spiritual life, I mean your spiritual life is a function of what you must do rather than a function of what Jesus Christ has already done, is doing, and will do for you. Friends, it is unbiblical to think... uh, uh, That the gospel is what saves us and then once we become Christians, we mature by trying harder. Yet that's the way so many of us live our Christian lives. lives. So so I want you to understand, uh, the gospel isn't merely the starting line for the believer. It's the whole race. It's not merely the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z. And so when I talk about warm hearted gospel centrality I want you to uh, uh, know it's not your performance but ultimately it's Jesus' performance that is the key to spiritual transformation. So we pivot Gospel centrality means you pivot, you take your eyes off yourself, you take your eyes off your circumstances, and you look away, and what do you do? Well, according to Hebrews, you fix your eyes on Jesus, your Savior. You're bleeding and dying Savior. And the wonder of his love for you. Uh, my stars, he laid aside the glory of heaven for me. He humbled himself and became a man for you and and you press this reality into your life uh, that he was mocked, he was tortured, he was rejected, he he was crucified, that horrible death. For me, and you're fixing your eyes on Jesus and you're teasing out who Jesus is and all that he has done for you and you're pressing that down into the core of your being and you know what that does? It fills your empty tank. And most of us run on empty spiritually spiritually. And it makes you whole because you've pivoted from focusing on what you must do and all your stuff and all uh, the problems to who Jesus is. You know, today, somebody's going to make you mad. Today, somebody is going to disappoint you. And, and there's a, uh, something in you that's going to well up and you're going to be irritated and you're going to say, doggone it, and you're going to want to bomb. And you know what gospel centrality is? It's you saying, you know, man, I can't begin to estimate how mad I have made Jesus, how I've disappointed Jesus, how I've hurt Jesus, and how horrible I have been uh, before Jesus. And, you know, I have been completely forgiven, and therefore, I'm going to let this go. And what you've done is you've pivoted from your feelings to Jesus Christ. And I want you to live as a believer according to what's real, not what you feel. Uh, now, let me illustrate this pivot for you. We have this delightful illustration. It's almost a funny illustration in... Um, Uh, Luke chapter 10, it's a story of uh, uh, Mary and Martha. Remember the the two sisters? Um, And look at what Jesus says beginning in verse 41. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are so uptight. You are so worried and so upset about many things. But then I, I, I love this. Few things are needed, indeed only one. And Mary, your sister, has chosen what is better And it will not be taken from her. Now, you remember the story a couple verses earlier. Jesus has come into the sisters' home. He's going to have dinner with them. And so Martha, we are told in the text, is distracted by all the preparations for the meal. What's Mary doing? Well, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus because Jesus has come in and he has sat down and he's teaching the people in the house. He's talking to them. He's showering love on them. And Martha is distracted. And she is annoyed At her sister, and I want you to understand that Martha is a metaphor for the American church. Martha is a metaphor for you and me. And so we're stressed and we're busy and we're distracted by the preparations for living life. And when I say I long for you to live a gospel-centered life, I mean I long for you in this particular uh, story to be like Mary. Uh, To to be a person that regularly sits at the feet of Jesus and takes in his word and takes in his love and, and just lets it, you let it wash over you. Mary illustrates what it means to pivot away from all that's going on now now Jesus please Jesus is not talking about laziness here Jesus is talking about what's going on in our heart And so tomorrow somebody is going to hurt you and will you pivot or will you respond in kind? Hey, Jesus has forgiven me. Hey, I, I, I'm not equal to this, but look what he has done for me. Therefore, I can extend forgiveness. And there is so much unforgiveness in our churches. So much forgive, uh, uh, bitterness. Why? Because we don't pivot. I wish for you The grace of God to live a life of pivoting away from your stuff, away from your problems, away from you, and seeing the wonder. He did this for me? The Son of God allowed himself to be mocked, to be hungry? He showered me in this mercy? How can I not shower others with mercy? All right, so that's an explanation of sorts. Now let me go on and demonstrate this or actually prove the point Uh, biblically this is one of my most favorite verses in the new testament and paul says and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate think about the lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which is from the lord who is the spirit now i want you to note a couple of things look at these words closely paul is speaking to you as a christian He is talking about spiritual transformation. He uses the word. In other words, he's talking about how we grow, how we develop spiritually, how we become better husbands and wives and friends and neighbors and employees and employers. And Paul doesn't say, hey, suck it up and try harder. He says, take your eyes off yourself. And look to Jesus. uh, Contemplate the Lord's glory. Now, as I said last week, from beginning in the Old Testament throughout the New Testament, when we bump into the Lord's glory, there's a twofold aspect it's God's might and God's mercy. The mighty King and the merciful Redeemer. And as I said over and over last week, one of the ways you can think of the Lord's content is to contemplate on Jesus' mercy to you. Do you do that? Is that part of uh, your, your, your spiritual life? You see, what Paul is saying, and I don't think we see this very often, is that the key to transformation is contemplation on grace. And grace has a name, and his name is Jesus. You know, really what I'm saying is ultimately you do not need 10 steps to a better marriage. I mean, there's help there and truth there, but what you need is to understand as a husband, as a wife, you're spiritually bankrupt but you have been totally and completely forgiven, exonerated because Jesus bore your sins and you are completely and totally loved. So how in the world could I not extend that love? And how dare you as a believer in Jesus Christ to not speak softly, guilty? Raise your hands, no, never mind. How dare you not show mercy? How dare you not extend forgiveness? How, how, how dare you harbor grudges and keep account of the things suffered? The point of this verse is that the spiritual life is not you uh, uh, keeping a list of all the things you've got to do to please Jesus, but you keeping a list of all the things Jesus has done for you. Do you see that? And so you tick them off. You, you think about them. And it's not an abstraction, this is not theory, this is reality, this is practical, it's functional. Let me go on to the second verse, and I could look at several. Actually, I had several, and I had to cut back, uh, because Hannibal's now the senior pastor, and I'm a... <laughs> Never mind, it's a long story, and I'm bitter. <laughs> so here's another, another wonderful verse, actually, uh, there, it's verse 11 and 12. So notice, the grace of God has appeared... And it offers salvation. Uh, The grace of God is uh, another way of saying Jesus. It's another way of saying the gospel, as Paul just put it in the previous verse, uh, uh, the Lord's glory. So Jesus has appeared and he offers uh, salvation to all people. And and here we we, uh, just intuit that Jesus is talking about our experience in coming to Christ Uh, He's he's describing the experience of a non-believer who turns and repents and trusts in Jesus. And by the way, if you haven't done that, come to Jesus. He loves you so much, he died for you. But I want you to see what happens next. Paul says this gospel teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. So in other words, now he's talking to us as Christians. And what does he say? He says it's Jesus. It's the gospel that teaches us to say no to our pride and our bitterness and our jealousy and our anger and our lust and our tendency to tether our lives to our status and stuff. And it's living in light of the wonder of Jesus, the mercy that enables me to live a self-controlled, upright, here's the obedience, and I am in no way this morning attempting to minimize obedience But what I'm doing is is going underneath obedience and talking about what motivates us uh, to live a life of obedience, to live a self-controlled, upright, godly life in the present age. So when you put verse 11 and 12 together, what we understand is the key to the spiritual life is gospel centrality. It's not me huffing and puffing uh, because I don't have it in me. It's me acknowledging again, I'll say it again, that I am spiritually bankrupt, but I've been totally forgiven. And so I'm going to rest in this forgiveness. I'm going to rest in the confidence of who my Savior is. I'm going to rest not merely in the fact that God exists, but he is my father, and I am his adopted son. Warm-hearted gospel centrality. And Paul is describing in these passages a pivot. And so we rest and we rejoice. And I think one of the reasons that we don't laugh very much or we don't laugh in, in light of the mercy of God is because we miss the grace along the way. So I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. and I, I, I've told pieces of this story, but I've never told it like this. When I was a little kid, my parents fought a lot before they got divorced, and it had everything to do with the fact that was, my dad was an al- alcoholic and my dad was drunk all the time. And dinner times were especially difficult. So, what do you do when you're sitting at the dinner table and you're five years old, six years old, seven year old, eight year old, nine year old, and, and, and more? How do you find stability in that environment? Well, the way I found it was by looking at my mother and looking at her face. Because if my mother was okay, I was okay. And in this non-Christian home, my mother was always okay. Brokenhearted, to be sure. But she was solid. Gospel centrality is looking beyond the pain and the strain, the mess and the stress. Because you know you're not equal. You, you know you're, uh, like I was in that moment, a five year old. I, I had no idea what to do. And you take your cell eyes off yourself and you look to Jesus. It's called a pivot. And you are okay because Jesus is infinitely okay. Amen? And so you see, as Jesus describes his heart, one of gentleness and lowliness, which means he's accessible to you. Uh, you see him in his infinite goodness, his infinite greatness. I mean, he died for our sins, but he was raised from the dead, which means he's present and just beyond, this, just beyond sight. And so, gospel centrality means you can come hell or high water, you can be okay. And you know what it does? It calms you into joy, it empowers you into taking risks. It encourages you in life's difficult uh, moments when you feel completely and and totally uh, defeated. So, those are two among several passages. And now what I want to do is spend a fair amount of time uh, applying this. And the way I want to apply this is by asking the question, how do I know if I'm making progress in living a gospel-centered life, making this pivot? Uh, What does it look like? What are the markers? Uh, So what I want to do is I want to give you four markers of how you can know you're moving down the gospel-centric road. And here's the first. As a believer, you see Jesus as the source of your life, and that means a lot to you. Uh, You know he has created you, he has chosen you, he has adopted you, he has redeemed you, he has forgiven you, he has given you incredible spiritual gifts, he has given you wonderful assignments in life. Some of them are very difficult, I know. And he is the source of your life and your righteousness. Righteousness. Jesus gives us a wonderful metaphor in John chapter 15 of this when he says, hey, by the way, I want you to know I'm the vine and you you are a branch. Now, have you ever thought about the fact that just as a vine will never ever, it's impossible to withhold anything uh, from the branch, so Jesus will never withhold anything from you He is the source of your life. Wow. I love the way Peter expresses this. His divine power, not just power, but his divine power, which is active in you, has given us everything we need for a godly life. Now here comes the pivot through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and his goodness. Glory and goodness are two sides of the same coin. So when I think of God's glory, I don't think of his distance. I think of his nearness. I think of his greatness. I think of his goodness. And Jesus, you know, is the source of your life. So you have confidence. The second marker is this. Jesus is the unifying motive of your life. Jesus is the reason for the words you choose. For the patience you continually extend. Jesus is the reason you don't count down from 100, you count up from zero. She he did that, he did that. Jesus is the reason you befriend the needy, the reason you invest in the lives of other people. Jesus is the reason you live a Christian life of extreme generosity. I mean, generosity with your time, your talents, and your treasure. Because Jesus is everything to me. Jesus is my motive for existence. Now, we all want to be accepted. Uh, That's part of the DNA of what it means to be a human because without acceptance, we have no identity. We discover our identity uh, through acceptance, and that's why people's uh, opinions matter so much. It's not merely we want to be accepted, but it forms our identity and how we feel about ourselves. But as a gospel-centered believer, you know uh, that... uh, Jesus' acceptance of you makes every other human person that accepts you pale in comparison and you delight in the fact that I am totally accepted, I am totally secure as a child of the living king and you make that pivot all the time and it produces joy. Because for you, nothing is more important in life than knowing Jesus. And I'm not talking theoretically. I'm talking existentially, experientially. And to know that I'm accepted by the King of Kings settles me, it stabilizes me, it gives me peace. And boy, I wish that for you. So what does Paul say? I want to know Christ in and through everything in my life, over and above everything in my life, underneath everything in my life. I, I, I want to experience Christ. Uh, the word know there is an experiential term. And yes, I, I, and here we know that because he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection in, in my daily life because I'm making this pivot continually as I participate in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. And so somehow I can attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so I live a life on the one hand in light of the love and the power of God. On the other hand, I I continue to put to death the misdeeds of my body. I deny myself. Jesus says it's essential to following him. And friends, the spiritual life, I'm going to say it again, is never about what you feel. It's about what is real. And when you get that, you change. Amen. All right, let me go on. Marker number three. Glorifying Jesus is your life goal. Now we all have goals and, and we should have goals and some of us should have more goals, some of us should have uh, uh, less Goals. Uh, and, and, and goals are really a good thing. I've had this goal to, to retire for the last couple of years, and now here it is, my last Sunday, and I'm like, ah, I don't know. But is your ultimate goal to glorify Jesus? And what do I mean by glorifying Jesus? I mean you throw the spotlight on Jesus. And let me illustrate this with the Old Testament. You know, we tend to think, um, we, we tend to have, even as followers of Christ, some of us have a negative view of the Old Testament because we think the Old Testament is a series of instructions sprinkled with stories. And it's just an overwhelming weight, and it's almost distasteful. But the reality is the Old Testament is not a series of instructions sprinkled with stories. It is one story with one hero, Jesus Christ. Because as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the entirety of the Old Testament points to Jesus. For example, do you know that Jesus is the true and better Adam who restores what the first Adam lost in the Garden of Eden? That Jesus is the true and better Isaac whose heavenly father not only raised his hand with the knife, but brought it down hard on Jesus as he gave his life. Uh, Do you understand when you read the Old Testament that Jesus is the true and better Joseph, my favorite Old Testament character? who not merely sits at the right hand of Pharaoh, but sits at the right hand of God, who not merely rescues his people from famine, but from sin itself. Jesus is the true and better Joshua who leads his people into the promised land. Jesus is the ultimate temple, the uh, uh, establishing an unassailable meeting place between God and man. Jesus is the true and better sacrifice, sacrificial system, the true and better priesthood. Jesus is the true and better Queen Esther who didn't merely risk losing the palace when uh, she said, when I perish, I perish, but Jesus gave up his heavenly palace saying, I will perish. I love them so much. I love you so much. I'm going to die for your sins. And we spend our lives focusing on ourselves. I mean, by stars, Jesus is a true and better Job who doesn't merely distance himself from his annoying friends, but he lays down his life for his friends, his enemies. And I could go on and on. Now, of course, I am not saying every single thing in the Old Testament is Jesus. But I am saying to you, this is not an interpretive trick. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us the rock that Moses hit while Israel's in the wilderness in order to draw out water, is Christ. Uh, Take the story of David and Goliath. This incredible story. Is it really a story about the giants we face in our life? You know, anxiety or a job loss or financial stress or, you know, kids or whatever. Is that story really about, okay, you're facing the giant, so like David, you need to dig deep and pull up faith and courage. No. That is not good news. That is bad news because you and I just aren't up to it. We can't live like David lived in that particular moment. So what about instead, you insert yourself into the story, not as David, but one of the Israeli soldiers, who, by the way, is cowering in fear because of the giant, who is frozen, whose eyes are downward, who's overwhelmed, who can't speak because he's overcome with anxiety. And you see David is pointing to Jesus who acting as your representative head slays the giant of sin and imputes his righteousness, gives his righteousness to you while you have done nothing to deserve it. David points to Jesus Do you see the mercy of Jesus in the story of David? And to the extent we read the Old Testament and see see it as pointing to our Savior, it enables us to become a gospel centered person, a man, a woman, a student. And so, no matter what the devil throws at you, the world your flesh throws at you, you have the ability to overcome. And it's a pivot. And the reason I mention the Old Testament, because if everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, shouldn't your life? And if the way to properly interpret the Old Testament is to see Jesus in it, isn't that how we should interpret our lives? So we look for Jesus, and we throw the spotlight on Jesus. Because gospel-centered people are alive in the mercy of Jesus and we want to glorify that grace. Finally, the last marker. You're moving down the road when Jesus is increasingly your hope, not your stuff, not your circumstances, not this or that. Let me say it this way. Every day, the luggage of condemnation arrives on your doorstep. And Satan whispers in your ear, you know, you're miserable. Uh, 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 You're uh, you're a Christian, come on. And Satan whispers to you and says, you know, you're spiritually hopeless. Go watch TV. But because you have put all the eggs of your hope in the basket of mercy, I mean Jesus of grace, I mean Jesus... you can push back and you can say to Satan, you know, there is no condemnation for me because I am in Jesus Christ and he has borne my guilt and he has borne my shame and I am free to live for him. I will sin and I will continue to sin and I will uh, sin regularly in attitudes and words and all of that, but my hope is in Jesus and one day he's going to make me whole and he will wipe away every tear And there's not going to be any more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order has gone, and this is the old order. And the new order is coming. And so I wish for you this warm-hearted pivot to cast yourself on a Savior who loves you. And to bring that into your life. So in that moment you want to pop. In that moment you, your emotions uh, sink down into the toilet. You can say, I am loved. I am accepted. I am whole. I am, I am forgiven. Uh, and because Jesus is okay, I'm okay. Because to you, Jesus isn't merely useful. He's Beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, and we are amazed at what you have done for us, and we confess to you uh, in the press of our lives, we just tend to push it to the margins. And so, Father, we want to ask that you would bring Jesus to the center. That while we'll be busy like Martha, we'll be focused like Mary. Amen.